Well, the internet is ablaze with talk of a BRICS currency. And as I told Jeffrey Christian, I put news in quotes because we still haven't gotten what I consider to be a major news organization on this story. And so right now what we're left with is an announcement on Russia Today and the Global Times just put out an article today and they're seen as basically a tabloid out of China that is sometimes seen as a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where we continue to uncover the story. I feel like a detective here. The story behind the story, the story behind so many of the news stories that we see on CNBC, New York Times, you pick your newspaper of choice, and behind that is often a story of natural resources, which is our bread and butter over here. So turning to the Global Times, and it's in paragraph three here of this story titled Bricks in Person Summit to Focus on Cooperation Expansion, and when we turn to paragraph three... The expansion of BRICS, a common currency within the bloc and ensuring food and energy security, are among key topics of the agenda per media reports. And that is interesting, per media reports. So it's almost becoming this self-fulfilling prophecy here that the Russia Today report is now being reported by the Global Times it does raise a few yellow to orange to red flags as far as what is being discussed here. And it it sort of makes you also wonder, because people have pretty much run away with the story that it's all over for the U.S. dollar, the euro and the pound and every other Western currency, because now there's going to be a gold-backed currency. So that is our topic of conversation. That is the first 15 minutes with Jeffrey Christian and the practicalities of actually doing that. This is something Jeffrey Christian has discussed for a long time. He knows a lot of the history. So it's a fascinating conversation from someone who is remarkably sober in these areas. A word he finds surprising used to himself, as he says, but a remarkably sober character in a very passionate part of the market, which is the metals, particularly the precious metals. I mean, These bull markets, if you've ever ridden a bull market, I have only ridden, I guess, three, started with the rare earths back in 2010, and then it wasn't until the psychedelic stocks, that was right before, that was actually during crypto, so I actually had two at the same time, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, and of course crypto, which was arguably the greatest bull market of all time, you know, I should be totally rich and own a massive house considering the opportunities that were undergone. But as I'm describing to you here, uh, the passions run high and there is a kind of drunkenness that occurs when you are in these kinds of bull markets. And the metals themselves, particularly gold and silver, have a particularly emotional allure. It's probably part of the reason that they are seen as money. There probably is an irrational component to it. You know, some people say there's no bull market like a gold bull market. I wonder if that's true because, you know, I have been in this business since 2010, 2011, so I haven't really undergone like a multi-year gold bull market. So all to say, it's nice to have someone like Jeffrey Christian on who is totally level-headed, almost sober to a fault on these matters, but is much appreciated in this environment. I also asked him about silver and copper, and he also poured what I'd say is a little bit of cold water on these Uh, concerns of supplies of inventories falling. Now, with that being said, you know, I then I look over at the LME and the stocks continue to fall. So the opening stocks is now at 59,425. So that is the total amount on the London Metal Exchange, from my understanding, of copper. Now, this was at about 80, I think 79, thousand tons two weeks ago. It was at 68 a week ago. Now it's at 59,000. Now that is not the whole story. That is just the amount of stock on the exchange. However, the amount that is available to buy is 40,000 right now. And that may even be higher than last week. And that was even higher than the week before. 
So I think at one point there was only 35,000 tons available. Now there are 40,000 tons available. So the dynamic you're seeing is there's arguably precipitously less metal on the exchange, but of that metal, more is being made available to buy. So an interesting dynamic at work there. But just to counter this idea that there's nothing to worry about, you know, the numbers suggest that the stock of copper on the LME continues to drop, which is a major story. Now, speaking of major stories, we have an update as well on this germanium gallium story. So I thought this was a really fascinating, very short article here. The headline says it all from Reuters via mining.com. Pentagon has strategic germanium stockpile, but no gallium reserves. I repeat, no gallium reserves. So two-line story here. The Pentagon holds a strategic stockpile of germanium, but currently has no inventory reserves for gallium, a spokesperson said on Thursday after China announced export restrictions on the two metals used in semiconductors. Quote, the Defense Department is proactively taking steps using Defense Production Act Title III authorities to increase domestic mining and processing of critical materials for the microelectronics and space supply chain, including gallium and germanium. Now, if you're wondering, again, what is gallium used for? I have another article here. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. What are gallium and germanium? And we scroll down. Gallium is used in compound semiconductors, which combine multiple elements to improve transmission speed and efficiency in TV and mobile phone screens, solar panels, and radars. So it sounds like a pretty important metal there. And it sounds like the Pentagon has none in stockpiles. And then just adding to the drama here, and again, it's important to always not let the story run away with these fairly emotional narratives. But listen to this. China last year accounted for around 98% of the world's production of low-grade primary gallium, the core feedstock for the gallium supply chain. According to the United States Geological Survey, Exports last year were 95 metric tons, up 25% on 2021. So it sounds to me like China produces 98% of the world's production of low-grade primary gallium, the core feedstock for the gallium supply chain. So it sounds like China makes 98% of the gallium at the end of the day, of the primary low-grade gallium that goes into the supply chain. So That is remarkable as well. Now, adding the uh, geopolitical dimension to this, listen to what the Europeans were saying. I guess China barely gave any warning that they were going to cut off this material. They gave like a day warning. So here is a story from Bloomberg, EU pushing China to narrow the scope of metal exports control. And we scroll down to paragraph four, Xu Zhuiting Spokesperson for the Chinese Ministry of Commerce said Thursday that the EU and the U.S. were given advance notice of the controls. But people familiar with the matter said EU officials in Beijing were only given a short window, a matter of hours, to report back to their capitals before the official announcement. Officials in Europe found out Monday morning. So, you know, if there was any doubt that China is purposefully squeezing the West with the access to critical resources. I think here we have just more qualitative evidence that they are turning the screws on the West. And I'm kind of back to this theme which we've been discussing for months. If you're China and Russia, do you want to go to war in a kinetic war, as they say? Do you want to go to war with the West with weapons? Or do you want to go to war with economics and simply not giving resources? Again, I call it the perfect crime. It's such a cleaner way of going about it. And it's really just, you know, forcing the other person to make a move. Let's say all the talk on Twitter and YouTube is right and they do put out a gold 
you know, convertible or gold-backed currency, and we discussed that in detail with Jeffrey Christian, the difference or the similarity between the two, it does raise questions when you actually go down that rabbit hole, as many people are doing out on Twitter. What is the West's biggest vulnerability? Like To me, it seems quite clear it is the debts, these enormous debts. So that is where you want to go to war with the West. And what is the biggest weakness of the West? Well, it's lack of development of natural resources. It's ignoring of the mining industry and really disparaging of mining and natural resources still to this day, as we see with lack of appreciation for the importance of natural resources. That is the great opportunity. It's the obvious approach. That is your leverage. So it seems to me we're just getting more evidence of this strategy. And I remember seeing an article just by memory that a spokesperson for the Chinese communist government was saying, we're just getting started. Like, this is just the beginning. You know, if you want to keep turning the screws on us, we're going to keep turning the screws on you with these resources. So I think we already knew that. But one thing's to have a theory and other things to see actual qualitative evidence for our theories here. So that is also interesting. I mean, other than that, just one more story here. Actually, there's two. There's another important one that doesn't have so much to do with natural resources. But just one more story here that I want to touch just while we're on the topic. Move away from Russian metal saps Indian Chinese stocks in LME system. So this is Reuters. And it says here, traders and consumers scrambling for alternatives to Russian aluminum sparked a drop in available stocks of Indian origin metal in London Metal Exchange approved warehouses to 18% of the total in June for more than 50% in January. So 18%, this is just what I was discussing with copper. From what I understand of this first line of this story, only 18% of the stocks in June were available. Whereas in January, 50% were available. Monday's LME data also showed non-Russian origin copper accounting for a declining share of available stocks, with a proportion of on-warrant copper inventories sourced from China falling to 8% in June from 40% in May. The percentages calculated by Reuters referred to on-warrant stocks or material not earmarked for delivering out. So from what I understand here, copper... There's only 8% of non-Russian copper available on the exchange from 40% available in May. Higher percentages of on-warrant Russian aluminum in LME-registered warehouses at 80% compared with 41% in January and 68% in May suggest consumers and traders are avoiding Russian metal even though it is not sanctioned. Well, I guess if they run out of non-Russian metal, they will start to buy it. We closely monitor the levels and flow of Russian metal through our physical network. The LME said in a response to a request for comment, they continue, We note that all metals of Russian origin continue to be consumed by a broad section of the market and will remain vigilant in respect of this matter. So it's just a developing story, as I keep saying here. And then finally... I mean, this one was tweeted out by Jim Rickards, and, you know, this was completely ignored from what I saw in Western media, but the Russians are claiming that the Ukrainians attacked a nuclear power plant, the Smolensk nuclear power plant with NATO missiles. And, you know, this story here by TASS, T-A-S-S, Russian news agency, attack on Smolensk Nuclear power plant may be retaliated by strike on nuke facilities in Europe, according to Medvedev. Deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council added that Russia may hit nuclear facilities in Eastern Europe. So Moscow, July 9th, Russia may hit nuclear facilities in Eastern Europe if an attempted attack on the Smolensk nuclear power plant with NATO missiles is confirmed. Deputy chairman of the Russian Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, said on Sunday. Quote, if an attempted attack on the Smolensk nuclear power plant with NATO missiles is confirmed, it will be necessary to look at a scenario of Russia's simultaneous strike on the South Ukrainian nuclear power plant, Rovno nuclear power plant, and Kmelnitsky nuclear power plant, and on nuclear facilities in Eastern Europe. There is nothing to be embarrassed about, he wrote on his Telegram channel. So, 
Considering the nature of the threat here, one would imagine there'd be slightly more press on this, even if it's all just talk. And it brings you back to the markets, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like the stock market has completely ignored the threat of Ukraine. It's priced it out. And often, not always, the markets are right. So maybe there's something to be said for that. But you do wonder, in terms of black swans, it continues to be this conflict in Ukraine that continues to be, you know, I would say the number one candidate for a black swan. So tons to look forward to here. I mean, just a banquet of information here and many more news stories and cutting edge to the moment commentary from one of the best in the gold business as our feature content with CPM Group Managing Partner, Jeffrey Christian. So a wonderful show ahead of us. Finally, we have a major event coming up in London in October. The Canadian Mining Symposium is returning on October 12th and 13th. And you can simply go to events.northernminer.com if you want to sponsor the event or if you want to reserve a ticket. Again, just go to events.northernminer.com. It features Robert Friedland, Don Lindsay, David Garofalo, Frank Justra, John McCluskey, and Randy Smallwood as feature speakers. So major heavy hitters here in the mining industry at this year's Canadian Mining Symposium in London. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, McKinsey adds to warnings of clean energy metals shortages. Via mining.com, McKinsey and Co. joined the growing chorus warning that metals considered key to the clean energy transition face shortages in coming years, potentially suppressing the adoption of electric cars, wind turbines, and solar panels. These deficits likely will slow global decarbonization efforts by raising supply chain costs and, consequently, the prices of lower carbon products, McKinsey said in a report released Wednesday. Trafigura Chief Executive Officer Jeremy Weir and Bloomberg NEF have expressed similar concerns. Nickel, necessary for lithium-ion batteries that power electric vehicles, is expected to face shortages of about 10 to 20 percent by 2030, while dysprosium, a rare earth element commonly used in electric motors may experience deficits of as much as 70%, McKinsey said. Supplies of copper, lithium, cobalt, iridium, and tin also may be crimped. I mean, lithium, copper, cobalt, iridium, and tin. Nickel. The number of approximately 500 cobalt, copper, lithium, and nickel mines operating today will need to increase by as much as 76% to almost 900 in order to meet demand for batteries, McKinsey analysts wrote. The materials shortage would result in an additional 400 to 600 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions in 2030, the report estimates. That would blow through international plans to limit global temperatures as set out in the Paris Climate Accord. You know, it's interesting. I imagine that factors in all the greenhouse gas emissions that will be emitted by mining all these materials as well. So, I assume that's incorporated into this model. And as such, there would still be 400 to 600 million tons more of greenhouse gas emissions. That is my assumption, though. McKinsey recommends investments in mining, refining, and smelting increase to between 3 and $4 trillion by 2030, a 50% annual increase compared with the previous decade. Well, it's a good place to be in the mining industry, if you ask me, if there are 3 to $4 trillion expected in the next six years. Not a bad place to be. And a column from Reuters, Europe adds aluminum to its critical raw materials list. Well, another kind of obvious thing that probably should have been done a while ago, European Union countries have added aluminum to the list of minerals and metals covered by the Critical Raw Materials Act, the CRMA. The act is a centerpiece of the EU's strategy for ensuring it has the necessary inputs to compete with the United States and China in the global race to decarbonize. The initial omission of aluminum from the CRMA was greeted with outrage from parts of the industry, the Federation of Aluminum Consumers in Europe, lambasting EU policymakers for, quote, doing the opposite of what should be done, end quote. The last-minute inclusion of the metal, 
together with its upstream feeds of bauxite and alumina, attests both to the criticality of aluminum to the Green Revolution and Europe's increasingly precarious security of supply. So, again, they, I don't think copper has been added yet, from my understanding. So they might as well just add all of them. I mean, they're going to need them all. And so not sure what they're waiting for here. Neo Performance starts construction of rare earth magnet plant in Estonia. This is Reuters via mining.com. Neo Performance materials set on Friday. It has started construction of a manufacturing facility in Europe to produce rare earth permanent magnets, which are key for both electric vehicles and wind turbines. And I think you could probably add and military applications. The company said the manufacturing facility in Narva will be near its existing rare earth separation plant in Salame. The development comes at a time when dependence on China for key materials and technologies has become a major issue for Western countries, with some countries ramping up support to boost domestic production of critical minerals, including rare earths. So a new plant in Estonia. And turning over to Canada, world's biggest nuclear power plant being planned in Canada. So something for the uranium bulls here. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A Canadian utility is starting early work to expand a nuclear plant, potentially building the world's biggest facility as growing demand for clean energy spurs interest in atomic energy. So going in the opposite direction of Germany here, the Ontario government said Wednesday Bruce Power will conduct an environmental assessment of adding as much as 4.8 gigawatts of capacity to its plant in Canada's most populous province. The plant's eight reactors currently have about 6.2 gigawatts of capacity and supply 30% of the province's power. The expansion would make the site larger than Japan's Kashiwazaki-Kariwa plant, the biggest in the world with seven reactors and more than eight gigawatts of capacity. And the announcement comes amid growing recognition that carbon-free nuclear power is likely to play an important role in the global battle against climate change. Canada is developing plans to mandate a net-zero power grid by 2035, and the Bruce Project would be the first conventional nuclear plant in the province in three decades. Another utility in the region, Ontario Power Generation, is involved in an effort to develop a new type of advanced reactor. And we have a quote from Todd Smith, Ontario's energy minister, quote, New nuclear generation is going to be critical to building the clean grid of the future, end quote. Continuing on, Canada opposes commercial seabed mining without environmental assessment regulations. This is Reuters via mining.com. Well, it doesn't sound like an outright ban. It sounds like they want uh, environmental assessments done first. Canada is against commercial seabed mining in international waters without a comprehensive understanding of its environmental impacts and a robust regulatory regime, the federal government said on Monday. Quote, in the absence of both a comprehensive understanding of seabed mining's environmental impacts and a robust regulatory regime, Canada supports a moratorium on commercial seabed mining in areas beyond national jurisdiction and will not support the provisional approval of a plan of work, the government said in a statement. Earlier this year, the Canadian government said it would not allow mining in its domestic ocean seabeds without a, quote, rigorous regulatory structure, end quote, and that the need for natural resources does not override Ottawa's environmental commitments. Continuing on, just a headline here, if you're not aware, Canada port strike enters fifth day with talks deadlocked, threatening economy. So there is a big port strike on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. Negotiations broke down Monday when the British Columbia Maritime Employers Association walked away from the bargaining table accusing the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada of trying to expand its jurisdiction over maintenance activities at ports, Rob Ashton, president of the union, said. So big strike at a port on the West Coast. Continuing on, BHP looks to tiny microbes to cut stubborn steel emissions. And this is quite interesting because we saw a story here maybe about five or six months ago on how they're finding, I believe, new ways to extract copper. I believe it was Rio Tinto even has a startup where they are also using, I believe, bacteria. It's a Bloomberg News via mining.com. I mean, these are one of those stories that's kind of on the fringe of the narrative, but all of a sudden, if you're getting way higher copper extraction, that can make a difference. This is related to steel. The world's biggest miner is trying to figure out 
If tiny rock-eating microbes can help it solve a notoriously difficult climate puzzle, how to cut emissions from steelmaking? Most steel today is made in blast furnaces powered by coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, but there's a way to refine the metal using less polluting natural gas or hydrogen in a process called the direct reduced iron, DRI, method that reduces iron ore to iron without melting it. The problem is, is that the greener process only works on higher quality iron ore, and most of BHP Group's iron ore comes from the Pilbara region in Western Australia, where the raw material contains too much phosphorus, alumina, and other impurities to be refined using anything but coal. That is why BHP has enlisted the help of Boston-based Alonia, a biotech startup backed by, among others, Bill Gates. Alonia discovered that BHP's iron ore contained phosphorus-consuming organisms that could kickstart the refining process naturally, said Paul Perry, vice president of innovation at BHP. Quote, all living things eat phosphorus, end quote. He said, but this particular microbe also shakes loose alumina from the ore. Pretty fascinating. You can read the whole thing on mining.com. And continuing on the search for copper, Barrick CEO wants to search for more copper in Zambia and Congo. So Mark Bristow is looking for more copper, if not through First Quantum, through projects in the Congo, where, of course, Ivanhoe Mines has their large project there. Also in the gold industry, gold miners set to trade, marking Indonesia's biggest IPO this year. Bloomberg News via miningdoc.com, PT Aman Mineral International, the owner of the second largest gold and copper mine in Indonesia, is set to debut in Jakarta this week, following the country's largest initial public offering this year. So very interesting, uh, IPO in Indonesia. Aman Mineral owns the fifth largest copper mine in the world as of the end of 2020, according to data by Wood McKenzie in the offerings prospectus. The company posted net income of $1.09 billion in 2022, more than threefold increase from the previous year's figure. So interesting IPO out of Indonesia, which continues to just develop its metals markets there. And finally, Peru copper production up 35% in May. So again, this is counter to the story that we saw a couple of weeks ago where Chile, their production has been coming down. Peru's copper is up 35% in May. This is Reuters via mining.com. Copper production in Peru rose nearly 35% in May compared to the same month last year. The country's Ministry of Energy and Mines said on Monday, as Peru fights to hold on to its title as the world number two copper producer. Of course, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, thanks to Ivanhoe Mines, is competing for number two now. Production hit 234,781 metric tons in the month, the ministry said in a statement, as miners Cerro Verde, Antamina, and Southern Copper pumped out more of the red metal. The jump was, quote, significant because it helps Peru maintain its status as one of the top producers worldwide, end quote, the ministry added. So they are definitely uh, concerned about losing their spot as number two. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. It is at 4%. After spending the last few days above 4%, it dunked down a little bit this morning below, and now it's right back at 4%. And there seems to be a battle going on there. And the U.K. 10-year is at 4.666%. And again, there seemed to be a pretty big battle at 4.5% there. Now it is yielding 4.666%. So The UK continues to have a lot of pressure on their bond market there. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,925.05 per ounce. That is $12 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $23.04 per ounce. That is $0.26 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $927.37 per ounce. That is $19 higher than last week. Palladium is trading at $1,240.62 per ounce. That is $5 higher 
than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.77 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Iron ore is trading at $109.21 per metric ton. That is a dollar lower than last week. Aluminum is a penny lower at $0.97 per pound. Lead is $0.04 lower at $0.93 per pound. And nickel is $0.12 higher at $9.35 per pound. And tin is also higher at $12.86 per pound. That is $0.71 higher than last week. So a bit of a jump in tin there. And cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is $0.07 higher at $42.49 per kilogram. While uranium is slightly lower at $55.65 per pound. That is $0.55 lower than last week. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.07 per pound. Zooming out, looks like precious metals are higher. Well, Platinum and palladium are higher, while industrial metals are basically even, with the exception of nickel that has edged higher and tin that maybe had the biggest move. So zooming out, I mean, no panic in the metals over here. I mean, copper below $4, gold below $2,000, silver at $23. I mean, there's no panic going on here. So, I mean, lead, 93 cents. So not bad at all. Zinc coming down, even uranium and lithium. Lithium basically even, uranium coming down. So steady as she goes in the metals markets, smooth sailing, not too much volatility there. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group to the Northern Miner podcast. We discuss the possibility of a BRICS currency and the practicalities of that and all the discussion around having a gold-backed or convertible currency, and words matter here in that regard, as you're going to find out, and also Jeffrey's opinion on silver and copper inventories and what is going on over there. We are hearing reports of lower inventories. We get Jeffrey Christian's, again, very sober view on the matter as we come to expect. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, back to the Northern Miner podcast. He has given many great interviews here, including on what is going on with the gold in Russia back during the Soviet Union and many, many more tales. Over the years now, it's turning into Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be back. I always enjoy our conversations. Well, the feeling is mutual, and I feel like, you know, sometimes the gold market gets kind of boring, sometimes it gets kind of exciting, and I feel like now is a time when it's starting to get exciting. I'm sure you've heard the, and I want to put it in quotes, the news, quote unquote, because I can't find actually a really great source for this news story about a BRICS gold currency but it is kind of all the rage right now in the gold discussion. So why don't we start there? Have you heard of this idea that the BRICS are going to announce in August a gold-backed currency? What are your thoughts on this story? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And you kind of stole my thunder when you said, gee, it's strange that there's no one's really talking about this. And I think that that's a very telling thing. Let's start with Russia. Putin has talked about how gold, you know, Putin's whole thing, a lot of people think he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union, but he doesn't. He wants to rebuild czarist Russia. If you look at, he always has a czarist flag behind him, not a Soviet flag. And part of that is a fascination with a gold, not a gold standard, but gold as the uh, currency used, which was the case until really the 19th century. And I'll say an aside here, a lot of people made a lot of commentary when Xi Jinping visited Putin for like three days earlier this year. 
But largely overlooked in the Western commentary was the fact that Putin had drafted various agreements that he had this vision of she and he signing these agreements in formal ceremonies while she was in Moscow. And she declined to sign all of them. You know, one of them was a long discussed by the Russians idea that the Chinese could finance the creation of uh, gas pipelines from eastern Siberia into China and then buy the gas from Russia. And she explicitly said, you, czarist Russia, took that land from China in the 19th century, and you want us to build and pay for pipelines so that we can get the gas that is on land that was traditionally ours and pay you for that gas. And, you know, just as you say that Ukraine is part of Russia, we say that that part of Eastern Russia is part of China from history. And there were several other agreements, including one about linking their currencies, which Xi Jinping just said no. Now, that's important because what you have right now with this thing that came out, I think, on Friday, the 30th, is someone in the Russian government said, oh, we're going to create a gold-backed BRICS currency for use with uh, international settlements of trade and capital flows, and we're going to announce it in August. Now, Putin has been talking about such a currency for a couple decades, and nothing has happened. So it's his pipe dream. The Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, the, the South Africans are not interested. And you won't find anybody in any of those central banks talking about this. Then if you stop and you say, well, what would that involve? And you say, well, if you have a gold convertible currency, and there's no, 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 we're not talking about gold convertible, we're talking about gold backed. Well, if it's not convertible, it's not really gold backed. Yeah, you know, that's like a, a silly thing that you can argue if you are a silly person. If you had a gold-backed currency and you were using that to settle trade among those countries, they would steal each other's gold because Brazil's not an accumulator of gold and South Africa's not an accumulator of gold. India used to sell its gold, but then it started buying gold again a few years ago. China has been buying gold, but the Chinese government's directive to the People's Bank of China is that gold in China stays in China. And the idea that you could have a currency that would people could show up and say, I have this currency, give me your gold, you can have this currency. That's anathema to what the Chinese government and the People's Bank of China wants. So it kind of looks like a non-event. You know, once again, some Russians saying, hey, we're going to do this. The thing doesn't make sense on an economic basis. You know, the currency floats of the Chinese yuan, the Indian rupee, they tried to use the rupee for a settlement of trade between Russia and, and, and India a few months ago. There weren't enough rupees in existence to pay for the uh, oil and gas and other things that India was buying from Russia. So it doesn't look like it's real. Reuters last night asked Janet Yellen, she was in Beijing for meetings with the PBOC and the Minister of Finance and, and people in China. And during the final press conference, Reuters asked her what she thought about this. And the career diplomat, she didn't mention this overtly. So she either was completely dissing it or she had not heard of it. It's probably the latter because it, it only showed up, I think, on Kitco. But she talked instead uh, in generalities about the idea of moving away from the dollar for trade settlements. And, you know, the U.S. policy that, yeah, that will happen, but you still have more than 90 percent of the trade globally 
among governments and countries settled in U.S. dollars. And even if you start gnawing at the edges of that, it probably is going to continue to be that way for a long time to come. So, you know, it looks like the kind of thing that, you know, some Russian potentate with grandiose ideas about rebuilding Tsarist Russian empire would say, we're going to do this and we're going to announce it in August. And everybody else is saying, yeah, yeah, sort of like the way you announced those trade deals with Xi Jinping when he was in Moscow in the first quarter of this year. It's probably not going to happen, but that won't stop the gold promoters and the gold bugs and the people who hate the U.S. government and hate the U.S. dollar from saying, oh, this is imminent. Well, a fascinating, thorough answer here. Uh, and I want to go to the convertibility because this is something you brought up before, this idea that, you know, the distinction between a quote-unquote gold-backed currency and a convertible currency and that ultimately that if you have a gold-backed that's not convertible, it's like a car without wheels, if I remember <laughs> our last conversation. And so my follow-up question, though, is because often you do hear, oh, there's not enough gold. Oh, this isn't possible to do a gold-backed currency. But isn't it true that before 1971, in fact, the U.S. dollar was a gold-backed currency? Before 1971, the dollar was a gold convertible currency. That's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry, a gold, and, so that you actually could convert it. We went off the gold standard because we, other countries and other private entities were turning in dollars at the U.S. Treasury at such a rate that, you know, we... Our gold holdings in the U.S. Treasury right now are about 261 million ounces, and they've been unchanged since 1979 oh, or so. Uh, they sold some in the late 70s after they got off the gold standard. But they, I don't want to use the word lost, but I'm going to. They, the, There were more than 200 million ounces, I believe, withdrawn from the U.S. Treasury by people who were coming to the Treasury and saying, I have dollars. You say that the dollar is worth $35 per ounce. Here are my dollars. Give me the gold. And in 1967 and the first four months of 1968, there was this massive run on the U.S. Treasury gold. And that continued. You know, in, in April of 68, Lyndon Johnson closed the private sector gold window so that corporations and individuals couldn't show up with dollars and get gold. And U.S. citizens couldn't do that. Hey, you had to be a foreign entity to do that uh, until 68. But he stopped it in 68, but the, it continued on a, uh, on a government level. So, you know, the Bundesbank or the Banque de France or the Bank of England, major trading countries back then would say, I have all these dollars that I'm getting because you Americans are buying imports from Germany, France and England and give me the gold. So in August of 71, Richard Nixon closed the official gold window and said the dollar is not convertible in gold anymore, and we won't have the 40% backing uh, that we had under a gold-backed currency. So does that preclude then the idea then of a gold convertible currency, or is it, was it simply that they simply maybe there was too much currency out there and like, in a sense, it seemed to work before until it didn't, I guess, is my point. So because, again, you hear this uh, criticism often that, well, that's just impossible to have a gold convertible currency. But it seems like, in fact, we had a gold convertible currency in the U.S. from, I guess, you know, was it Bretton Woods all the way to to, you know, the late 60s, at least on a private level. So do you think it's possible? I guess is my no. question. Let me clarify it. We had a gold-backed and gold-convertible currency from 1792 until 1971. And other countries had gold-convertible currencies at the same time. And the vast majority of transactions up until like the 18th century were actually transacted in gold and silver as opposed to national currencies. So national currencies are relatively new, if you will, although there have been 
paper currencies going back more than a, a thousand years. But the important thing is, you say, is it impossible to have a gold convertible currency or gold back currency? It's not impossible, but you have to understand this. There have been thousands of international currency systems over history. Almost all of them were backed by gold and almost all of them, in fact, no, all of them, except the present system, have collapsed. So the idea that if you back your currency with gold, it becomes protected and bulletproof and it will never collapse and never deteriorate in value is not empirically supported. You know, the evidence is that gold does nothing in terms of giving you currency stability. And in the Bretton Woods period from 1945 through 1971, you had massive devaluations and revaluations of currencies because of the fixed exchange rates that existed. The dollar was convertible to gold to $35, and then other currencies were convertible to the dollar at fixed rates. As the economies outside of the United States recovered from World War II, their currencies should have appreciated, but they were fixed exchange rates. So you'd get this wild currency imbalance until it was so painful that there'd be a, a massive revaluation or devaluation. And people think back, people who never study history, yeah, think that under a gold system, that there was a great deal of currency stability. There was a great deal of currency instability, but because it was all on fixed rates, it was violent. You'd have the situation where the currency would be out of whack with the economic realities, and then there'd be this violent adjustment, and then it would go on for a few more years and then bury another violent adjustment. And when we got off the gold standard, and we broke up the Bretton Woods system, which was the dollars convertible to gold and everything else is convertible to the dollar at fixed rates. We went to first what they called a dirty float and then a, a full float of the currencies. And the idea was that the currency values can fluctuate on a daily basis, reflecting changes in the economic environment and the comparative economic strength of the different countries. So you got away from these these violent ratcheting, economically and financially destructive revaluations and devaluations. And you said, you know, the, the currencies are gonna get revalued and devalued by the market every day. So you could go back. Now, there's another thing, which is that the economy, once we got off of the gold standard, the economies of the world expanded enormously, like, you know, 13 fold or 15 fold. And, and the financial system has been deregulated and there have been all kinds of innovations. So the idea that you would have enough gold to have a significant, well, I'll use the terms that the People's Bank of China use. You can have enough gold to have gold play a significant role in the global financial system, but it can't be a large and significant role. It can have a small but significant role in the international currency system. And that goes back to the whole idea of this idea of a BRICS currency. And they're very vague about it because they haven't really thought it through. But, you know, it's, oh, well, we'll all keep our own currencies, but we'll have this other currency that we use for trade and it will be backed by gold. Well, okay, that means that if you're buying oil and gas from Russia, they're going to want to take your gold. And like I said, China and India are going to say, no. And Brazil and, and South Africa are going to say, no. And most other countries are saying, no. I mean, you do see this now with Russia. The Wagner Group gets paid in gold for defending these different potentates in the Sahel in Africa. They're not taking oil or currencies. They're taking gold payments. Yeah. And you can look at that and you can look at the just the numbers and say, if you had this gold backed currency and it was gold convertible, all it would be would be a scam for different countries to 
shake down the gold reserves of other countries. You know, and again, you know, China and India have no interest in doing that. Well, it's a important point I think you bring up that, you know, even when we had gold backed or gold convertible currencies, there was still volatility and it didn't solve anything because all of those currencies, apart from the ones that exist right now, are gone. So that's a pretty important point, except for one, which I guess is gold itself, which, as you also pointed out in an earlier conversation, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it's a currency. And so just just to circle back on that. So you do consider gold a currency. I call it a quasi currency. But yes, it is. It trades like a currency. It trades you know, it trades like a currency. People hold it as a store of value uh, the same way they do currencies. It, you know, it has many of the functions of a currency. Okay, fascinating. Thank you for going down that trip on the BRICS. Now, turning to the market itself, it seems like we're in an interesting time here. I mean, my antennae, you know, my YouTube antennae are starting to see the metals people are starting to get excited. They're starting to get bullish. They're starting to feel like gold is about to lift off here and that things are kind of primed, uh, you know, for the most part here. What is your sense of the gold market right now? What are you seeing from your, you know, particular, you know, privileged vantage point over there? What can you tell us about what's going on in the gold market? Well, I, you know, I would agree with you for the first four months of this year. But I would say that there's a pause in the enthusiasm right now. Now, you know, yeah, you have the gold bugs who are always enthusiastic and they've been talking about, you know, gold's going to $10,000 or $30,000 forever. And, and they're still enthusiastic and they're more enthusiastic. And this time it's real and this time it's really going to happen. And we try to ignore those folks. Uh, but we look at mainstream institutional investors, high net worth individuals, family offices, central banks, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds. And what we've seen is really over the last 23 years, you've seen a very slow incremental increase in the willingness to consider gold as a significant, if small, portion of your assets. And that continues. And really since the middle of 2019, even before the pandemic, you started to see more central banks and individual investors and institutional investors taking a greater interest in gold. And it's waxed and waned over the last four years, five years now. And it was very strong in the first part of this year. And right now it's kind of in abeyance and we've actually seen some liquidations by institutional investors and high net worth individuals. We think that's a, a seasonal and a cyclical thing and that by the end of the year, the enthusiasm is probably going to be reviving again. So, you know, we do think that we're headed in the right direction, but I think there's a summer pause right now as a lot of people look at the economy and they say, okay, yeah, interest rates have risen sharply around the world, but they're low by historical standards. And if you take into account inflation, they're, they're very low or negative still. So interest rates, A, are not all that attractive vis-a-vis, -vis, say, uh, gold or other investments. In the meantime, interest rates are probably not so high in real inflation-adjusted terms that they're turning off the economy. So all those people who thought we were racing into a recession 2021, 2022, the first half of 2023, are now backing away. We still think there's a recession coming, but the reality is that there's a lot more strength in the U.S. economy and in other economies that could delay the onset of a recession for several more quarters. You know, we're not sure when it'll hit, but it's not, in our view, imminent. But our view doesn't matter. What matters is all of these institutional fund managers and sovereign wealth fund managers and family offices are saying, you know, the stock market's not as risky as I had thought. Uh, the corporate bond market's not as risky as I thought. Commercial real estate is now at levels that some commercial real estate might look attractive 
as investments. Um, and maybe it's just time to lighten up on my gold a bit. Uh, but I know it's there and I can come back to it. Interesting. So maybe a temporary respite, a b- bit of a brief pause here. I would expect there would be a lot of enthusiasm right now and that things would be gangbusters. Are, are you saying it's kind of it, just not as much as before? Is that basically what you're saying? We are telling our investor clients that, you know, June, July, August is a good time to accumulate gold. And you're seeing the People's Bank of China basically doing the same thing. But a lot of investors are not value investors, or they might say they are, but they don't behave that way. So when the price is down, a lot of investors sell or don't buy at least. Uh, And, you know, we tend to say, oh, the price is low. This is a good time to buy. You know, don't look to, you know, buy it when the price is high. But a lot of investors are trend followers, unfortunately. So they will wait for the price to rise significantly before they become reinterested. But, you know, we've been telling our clients all year long, we expected weaker prices in the June, July, August period. We've been seeing that. This is probably a good time to buy gold. Fascinating. And on silver, I assume you saw that report that was in Bloomberg maybe a week ago where they're mentioning how silver stocks were are getting very low. And we actually had someone on from Global X ETFs last week uh, was discussing how the, you know, a scarcity of supply and how, you know, these solar panels, actually the new ones are using double the amount of silver, I guess the silver paste or whatever it is. Um, what are you seeing in the silver market? Like, do you echo that or do you see something different? What's your take on, yeah. you know, silver well, supplies, silver stocks, all that? Well, if you look at London, we only have data on inventories back to 2016, but we know some things. CPM Group has estimates of how much silver was in the London market prior to that. You saw a massive amount of silver moving into London in the period 2016 to 2020. And that reflected investors selling silver and just saying, I don't want this silver. And that built up and that stuff has disappeared over the course of 21, 22 and the first half of 23. So London inventories are very low. If you look at the trade data, you see that a the vast majority of that silver was bought by banks and trading companies in India. And the Indian trading banks, bullion banks, basically took that silver out of London and moved it first to India. And then a whole bunch of it was sold to other countries, entities in other countries that needed silver, either because they were making solar panels or they're making electronics or they're making jewelry or they wanted it as an investment. So you've seen a shift in the locus of silver inventories away from London to India. China has enormous silver inventories. The United States has large silver inventories, but the amount of silver that's actually registered against COMEX futures positions is down to around its historic norm. It 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 used to be like 25, 35 million ounces in COMEX registered stocks. And then again, you know, 27, it was later than in London, but 2017, 18, 19, 20, you saw COMEX registered stocks and eligible but unregistered stocks rise very sharply. Eligible but unregistered has come off somewhat, but it's still at very high levels historically. And that reflects the fact that people bought silver and they're holding it and they happen to hold it in thousand ounce bars in COMEX registered depositories. So it shows up there for transparency purposes. Registered stocks are back down to about 30 million ounces, maybe 28 million ounces. I've been uh, out of the market uh, on family matters for a week, so I don't know that where exactly it is. That is way down from where it was in 2020. 
but it's back to where it has been for most of the last several decades. So it doesn't look like there's a crisis. I know the silver promoters want everybody to think that the world's running out of silver, but it doesn't look like there's a silver crisis. If you look at CPM Group's estimates of not only reported silver inventories, but also our estimates of unreported silver inventories, they're either at record levels or very close to record levels. So the world's not running out of silver, but it's moved from weaker hands to stronger hands. Interesting. So the silver is out there, but you're saying, it sounds to me from what you told me that really India and China are some of the stronger hands that you're referring to. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I, I sort of cringed when I said that because I know there are silver conspiracy <laughs> theorists. Who's, oh, he's talking about Bank it's of America. It's the bricks. No, no. I'm talking about investors who say, I think I should have some of my wealth in silver. And those investors are spread around the world. But there is a tremendous amount of silver in India and in China in refined form as well as in jewelry form. Okay, excellent. So just to wrap up then, I know you follow the copper market. In the London Metal Exchange, there are actually some remarkably low inventories from articles we're reading in Bloomberg and Reuters, where they're being quite surprised at the large amount of people, I guess, canceling warrants and taking delivery on their copper. Do you have any insights or an opinion on what's going on over there? Is this, you know, we have Robert Friedland coming out, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> copper's going to 10x. We have, you know, yeah. Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs saying it's going to do what oil did when it went to 10 to $150 a barrel. What's your take on, on the inventories uh, of copper? I have a yes, no, yes response. Right now, you're seeing a relatively tight copper market, and that reflects the stronger economic activity. And there are people who are expressing surprise at the fact that you have a stronger copper market, not because of any shortages in copper, but because they thought we'd be in a recession by now. So their projections of how much copper the world would be using were wrong and to their chagrin. Our expectation is that the supply of copper will play catch up with copper. We also do think that we'll see a recession, which will slow the growth, if not lead to a contraction of copper demand for a year or two. So we think that you'll see a period of copper, more ample supplies and price weakness over the next two or three years. And then longer term, you have these bigger issues related to the energy transition and the electrification of the world. And those are going to need a lot of copper on a long run basis. But what you've had over the last year or so is you've had people and without naming names, because you already named them, you have people who have been lumping together the fact that you had short term strength of copper demand higher than they had expected it would be. And this idea that there's going to be an enormous amount of copper needed soon in the next five to 10 years for the energy transition. And they put those two together and they say, therefore, the price of copper has to rise. Well, the copper price will rise because of the short-term tightness, but those long-term prognostications the copper price will wait to see reality before they get before the copper price gets pushed too much higher. Well, we always appreciate the sober perspective here. And as we know, the passions can run deep in the metals markets for whatever reason. Uh, so do you have any closing thoughts for us? Any just, you know, some perspective here for investors, people, metals investors that are listening here? Just any general thoughts about the markets and everything? Well, the first thing is, I guess it's a sad state of the world if I'm the sober one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> having just spent some time with my old high school and grade school friends, they would be shocked to hear that. But uh, I think that you know what it really comes down to is you have to you have to have a sober, realistic view of what's going on. I mean, if you look at the energy transition, 
it is occurring, but it's going to be much slower in some sectors like electric vehicles and electricity production than people seem to think right now. So you really have to have a realistic view and you have to sort of say, okay, we can have these scenarios like what if everybody got ethical and started cleaning up their their carbon footprints. But you have to also say, but that's probably not going to happen because that's not the way humans behave, unfortunately. So let's have a realistic view, which is what's happened over the last 10 years and to what extent are the trends of the last 10 years likely to continue for the next 10 years? And then you have a much less bullish. You still have a bullish outlook for gold, silver, and copper, but it's a lot less bullish than if you're overly enthusiastic about the world finding its moral compass. Fascinating as ever. Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks once again to Jeffrey Christian for a comprehensive assessment of gold, silver, and copper, which if you have an idea of what's going on there, really helps untangle much of what's going on out there. Uh, Definitely major pieces of the puzzle here. So do not delay as far as planning your trip to London for the Canadian Mining Symposium. It's taking place on October 12th and 13th in London, England. Just go to events.northernminer.com to reserve your spot or to sponsor the event. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.